Welcome to this episode of Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, and today I'm excited to welcome Jody Huffman. Jody is a board-certified behavior analyst who holds a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology, a Master's in Early Childhood Special Education, and a 200-hour yoga training teacher certificate. She specializes in early childhood behavior and development with a focus on developmental disabilities, such as autism spectrum disorder, with over 15 years of experience in the field, Jody has worked in schools, homes, child care centers, clinics, and community organizations. Her passion is individualized therapy, family-centered therapy in the home, school, and community. She believes strongly in promoting acceptance and inclusion of children with unique needs and abilities. Jody's motto is that all children deserve to feel like they belong. Welcome to the show, Jody. Thank you for having me. So one of the reasons that I invited you on the show today is that part of my job as a physical therapist is to help folks overcome pain and injury and return to function. And what I've learned is that if their whole world isn't going very well, then it can have a profound effect on their function. So there's research um, that is strongly correlating function and outcome measures after an injury. And the research I'm referencing specifically, it's low back pain. That if you have uh, anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, general stress happening in other areas of your life, your likelihood of having a positive outcome from your low back pain is is decreased significantly. In fact, um, psychosocial aspects are more correlated with the outcome than even what the MRI looks like. That's super interesting. So I'm super excited to have you on the show so that we can talk about what your role is and how you can help families, not only the children that you work with, but the parents, the grandparents, the teachers, the siblings. And in chatting with you, you have so much to offer. So I'm excited. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about what your, what your role is in the home and in the school when you're working with your clients. So... I've had a lot of different jobs throughout my career, and I've been able to sort of look at special education, whether it's, you know, a child with a diagnosis like autism or a child who's experiencing behavioral concerns in the classroom or at home. And I've sort of seen, you know, the school handles it this way or a psychologist handles it this way or a clinic handles it this way. And it just led me to think, like, what if there was a different way that provided sort of true wraparound services to these families and sort of supported them in all of the areas where they are, in their home, in their community, in their school, as opposed to just having these little bits of support in each area that's not connected. And what I've found is that I'm able to provide that. I'm able to provide that sort of holistic wraparound support to families where I'm looking at, like, what's happening with the child in their home? What's happening with the child when they're in their classroom? What's happening with the child when they need to go to the grocery store with the parents or when they go out to eat and find really family-centered, individualized strategies 
to support the whole child and the whole family, I think, is the big piece. So when we're talking about behavioral um, considerations and the type of behavioral therapy you do, what does that look like? What type of behavioral considerations or what you know issues or challenges are you working with with kids? I specialize in autism. So with that, we see a lot of, you know, lack of ability to effectively communicate or lack of social skills or sort of larger behaviors like aggression, self-injury, different things like that. And when you put all those things together, the child's sort of ability to function and have just like a happy existence becomes really compromised. And my approach is, yes, I'm working directly with the child, but I'm really, really focusing on giving the family the tools to meet their child's needs. And that's going to look different for every child, every family, even outside of like autism. You know, if you have a child who's neurotypical, but it's just having big tantrums that are disrupting their ability to participate in their classroom or sit at the dinner table. I think I sort of look at how can I involve the whole family in what we're doing. Like it ultimately doesn't matter what I'm doing with the child for 50 minutes once a week if the family is not gaining skills to also be able to support their child. Mm-hmm. So what percentage of your caseload would you say um, are children who are considered neurotypical? Maybe like 10%. 10%? Yeah. And I have are, a couple. <laughs> are the rest of them a variety of like differences in neurological conditions or are the rest of them mostly autism spectrum? Mostly autism, a little bit of ADHD, and I would say only about half of the children on my caseload have a current diagnosis because a lot of them are so little, but I'm seeing, you know, those traits of autism and it's sort of heading in that direction. And, you know, whether they have a diagnosis or not, it doesn't change the way that I deliver therapy, but that's sort of in general what my caseload looks like. What would be some – so if we've got a listener who's got some concerns about their children or child, what are some signs that you would look for? Like if you had a friend call you and say, hey, my my neighbor's kid is showing me some things that are concerning, what would you say, okay, if these things are showing up in this way, then you really should chat with your provider? I think – you know, a lot of the kids I work with are two years old, three years old, four years old. So we're talking really little. And sort of specifically with autism, a lot of the initial signs are delayed physical development is a big one. So kids that are not meeting those physical milestones or do sort of odd things like skip crawling is one that I've seen a lot with autism outside of the physical kids that are not responding to their name, that aren't sort of attending to faces when you're speaking to them and whose language is delayed. And those are sort of like obvious signs. Like I think things that sort of flag parents of like, ooh, I feel like my baby should be doing this and they're not. I've also found that 
with little girls in particular, it can be much more nuanced. They mm-hmm. oftentimes will meet sort of certain milestones and then you may see it presenting more behaviorally in terms of like becoming very rigid about certain routines and activities, being very controlling in how they want to be played with or wanting to sort of dictate play schemes. Um, They may speak and – but it may not sound sort of the way that we're conversing right now. You might hear a lot of sort of echolalia, which is just like repeating what we're saying or like repeating certain words. So I think it really differs child to child um, and it's constantly changing. And my ability to sort of recognize it has shifted sort of so much throughout my career as I've worked with so many different children. And, you know, not every – like every autistic child presents a little bit differently. Interesting. That's so interesting. I have a little clinical uh, caveat slash pearl that when a child skips crawling yeah. for for whatever reason yeah. – um, and there are lots of reasons why a ch- child might do that – but as they age, I want to cue parents and providers and teachers into looking at their oculomotor function mm-hmm. because and you, I'm sure you know this, but uh, for the listeners, as, as kids are crawling and they're looking straight down at their hands and their hands are moving reciprocal right in front of their eyes, it helps their eye muscles develop to working together, to watching things close to them move together. So our eye muscles should work in ways, you know, we call it convergence where your eyes come together, divergence where your eyes go apart. And this is a crucial part where they start to develop those motor patterns. Mm -hmm. And if they skip that, then they might end up seeing double, which some kids think is actually normal. So they don't realize that it's abnormal. So it presents with anxiety. So, for example, a kid might be standing on on the sidewalk and they have their older siblings and their friends riding towards them on a bike, but they're on the street. Mm -hmm. So they're really within a safe distance. But instead of three kids riding towards them, this child sees six kids and they can't tell exactly what direction Mm. they're coming from. And it can create a lot of anxiety. And if their acuity is good, it doesn't necessarily get picked up on on vision screens early. And so it can cause some issues. And we now also have some research showing that if you have a convergence insufficiency or if you have issues, difficulty with your eye muscles working together, basically being able to go cross-eyed, like if you Mm -hmm. stare at your thumb, you bring it close to your nose, at some point that should turn to double, and that's normal. If you don't have that, your risk of suffering from post-concussive disorder, um, which is prolonged concussion symptoms after concussion, is much higher if you started with um, convergence insufficiency to begin with. That's super interesting. <laughs> so side note about yeah. um, skipping crawling. Um, if you skip crawling or if your child skips crawling, keep an eye on their oculomotor function. And there are people who do vision therapy to retrain the eye muscles. Yeah. So um, I love how things like this overlap. The things it's super interesting. I think another one that like popped into my mind that I didn't mention in those traits is the toe walking. So that is not always, but that combined with some of these other traits can be a strong indicator of possible autism. And I have no idea why. I don't know why (laughs) autistic children tend to toe walk, but it's extremely common, particularly when they're little. Interesting. And I've worked with children who are what we call idiopathic toe walkers. So 
That just means we don't know why they toe yeah. walk. <laughs> yeah. Um, that are neurotypical yeah. otherwise. And, um, you know, sometimes they're so fun to work with. But I, I kind of wonder if the autism uh, – kids on the autism spectrum are more likely to do that because you decrease your sensory input by keeping that mm. ankle plantar flex. And you're not rolling through a range of motion where you have all those little joint sensors and all yeah. those little tendon – Golgi tendon organs and all those sensors that say, okay, now my ankle stretched and now my ankle's mm-hmm. tightening. Um, so maybe it's a way of decreasing sensory input. That would make a lot of sense. Or maybe there's something yeah. else where it's just, you know, hypertonic yeah. stuff. But um, anything else come to mind with traits that would, in a cluster at least, maybe raise suspicion and get some some professional input? I think like the things I mentioned, and I also think, and this is not medical in any way, but there's just this feeling I get. <laughs> And I, you know, and I can't say anything other than I just really trust my sort of initial gut feeling with kids. And obviously, like all of those traits take it into account, but there's oftentimes, and I have, I have not yet been wrong with this feeling of just something is a little bit off. Even when some of those traits are not present, and I usually find if I'm with the family for several years, a lot of those traits then start to become a little bit more apparent mm-hmm. as kids get older. And I'm like, ooh, that's why I had that initial mm-hmm. feeling about this. And I don't – I always hesitate to say that, and I never usually say that to families. Oh, I just have this feeling <laughs> inside. But I do, I think, having been around it for so many years and so long, there's something in me that's, like, very sensitive Well, to you that. call it a gut feeling. I would call it um, an incredible amount of experience and knowledge <laughs> and underlying problem solving that's going on so innately because yeah. you're so experienced with it that you don't have to think about, okay, point A, point B, point C. Yep, it's making sense. We're going to get to D next. Your brain's doing all that yeah. in the background. Um, and I think that experienced clinicians don't always give themselves credit for what's going on in the background. And it comes out like, because it comes out so quickly, like, yep, yeah. this is going to be it. And you're right most of the time. So it does feel like a gut feeling, but it ends up being your knowledge and expertise and experience all showing up. Um, so if you are just now tuning in, this is Dr. Tannis Kitchener, a physical therapist, interviewing Jody Huffman, who is a board-certified behavior analyst who specializes in early childhood um, special education and um, helps folks work through some behavioral challenges with neurotypical and atypical children to increase and improve and maximize their quality of life mm-hmm. and their ability to interact in, in their homes, in their communities, their societies. Um, so welcome if you're just now tuning in. And if you missed the beginning, remember that you can get us on demand on the Katie and K podcasts and I believe several different platforms. Just search Ask a Physical Therapist. Um, so where do you usually get referrals from for children? Are you getting them from teachers, from physicians? Do parents call you directly? Majority of my ref- private referrals have just been word of mouth which feels really good to feel sort of so 
connected in our community, and I think we are unique in that our community is very small. Um, my other big referral source is I have a contract with early intervention through the state of Colorado. So that is where I get all of my sort of zero to three referrals and kids will be sent to me who are showing delays in sort of communication, social emotional skills, cognitive skills. Sometimes they're showing delays sort of in all developmental domains. But that's how it's been sort of so far is that sort of state early intervention referrals and then just tons of word of mouth in the community, which feels really nice and really good. Do you feel that any child who's diagnosed or suspected diagnosis of ADD or ADHD would benefit from an assessment from you? Or do you feel like only if it's really impacting their ability to participate? I think it totally depends. Like I think, you know, my credentials do not allow me to diagnose in any way, but I have all kinds of different assessment tools that I use to sort of assess the why behind mm-hmm. behavior. You know, why, you know, parents love to know that. Why is my child doing this? Why is this happening? And I think ADD and ADHD can be so dysregulating to a family, not just the child who's experiencing it, but it can really disrupt the whole family system. So I think, you know, behavior therapy can be so valuable and so beneficial for parents who have a child with that sort of profile, whether or not the child has a formal diagnosis, and just getting some support in terms of like, how can we just find a little more ease in our day-to-day routines? Like it doesn't have to feel so hard all the time. That sounds so well put. I'm thinking of some families who dedicate so much to giving their kids all of the tools um, that they can and I mean, it is it is exhausting. And I think mm-hmm. if they had a particular provider who felt like, okay, I am your advocate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take some things off of your plate, not to say that you do the work for them, but they maybe aren't the sole person responsible for figuring it out. Absolutely. I think that just gives them a little bit of energy back. Well, and I just want families to feel like it doesn't have to feel so hard and you don't have to do it alone. I think having a child with a disability or having a child that's having behavioral issues, it can feel extremely isolating. Mm -hmm. And I hear that from families all the time. No one understands. You know, my sister doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. My friend doesn't get it. And it can just – it feels – they feel like they're doing something wrong, that they've messed up in some way. And I just love to tell families, like, there's nothing that you – did or didn't do that caused this. Mm-hmm. You didn't expect this and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to navigate it by yourself. Mm-hmm. So you said that you work with like one of your contracts is with early intervention. Does that mean that insurance pays for your services for some kids, for some families? Or is it all out of pocket? So early intervention is like a beautiful service for families because it's totally free to them. And then I'm slightly unclear how all (laughs) the funding works. I know like Medicaid is a big payer. Mm -hmm. I know there's state funding and I know there's federal funding that go into it. 
I luckily don't have to deal with any of the insurance billing for early intervention, but I do sometimes bill insurance for clients who have an autism diagnosis who require, you know, more than one to two hours of therapy a week. So Mm. I have sort of been delving into medical billing, which I'm sort of regretting, but I also think it's been amazing to be able Mm -hmm. to support families for, you know, four hours a week, six hours a week, and really make that change while the child is young. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify for the listeners, uh, early intervention is, is it zero to three years? Do I have that right? Yes, it's zero to three, but the child does have to qualify for it, which means they have to be showing at least a 25% delay in one of the developmental domains, which is hugely significant. For a while, it was a 33% delay, (laughs) but I think we've gone back to 25. So there has to be a significant impact in one of their skills to qualify for that service. Okay. And what about, we mentioned that you've worked in the schools. Um, Are you called on board when a kid gets issued an IEP, which is uh, what, an individualized education plan? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so do you automatically get called in for for those children for services? And is that covered through school therapy or is that outside of that? So with early intervention, what families have is it's called an IFSP, an Individualized Family Service Plan. So it's very similar to an IEP, but it's the step before. Okay. And the nice thing about that is it's family-centered. So I'm in the home or in the cl- – I'm wherever the family wants me. When kids turn three, they do shift to that IEP, and the school system directly takes over. So that means that providers who are employed by the school district are then who provide the therapy to the child, but it's only in school. They completely lose that family support piece. I've been very lucky that, you know, the Roaring Fork School District has been so welcoming to me. So they have allowed me to come into their schools with certain children who I am privately working with. And I get to collaborate with the special educator and with the classroom teachers and can sort of be that liaison between what's happening at home and what's happening at school. But that's unique. You know, that's not that's simply because I've pushed and asked for that. Okay. So your typical caseload is early intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody were listening to this and they're like, oh, my gosh, I think my 8-year-old or my 11-year-old mm-hmm. could benefit from this, how do they find somebody who does this? And, and let's consider outside of the valley yeah. as well. Um, where would somebody – how would somebody search for behavior specialists that can help them in this regard? It's tricky. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, a lot of behavior analysts work for sort of large companies or different things like that. I think it's unique to find someone that will come into your home and do it that way. But there is a website, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, where you can go on and search for other behavior analysts in your area. Um, I have also like listed myself on Psychology Today. 
So I think that can be another place to sort of search for early childhood specialists or just child specialists, behavior specialists. Um, But those are sort of the two ways. I also have sometimes just done like a cursory Google search, like behavior specialists in the area to Mm -hmm. see sort of what pops up. But I think like that's a barrier for families. It's how do you find the right person for your family? And that Mm -hmm. can be so hard. But those are like the couple things that I would start with. Okay. Um, And we have about a minute and a half left. So I'm wondering what would be a message for the community that you would – and it can be so broad, like either for neurotypical children, for atypical, for parents that are just like, my kid seems totally normal and I'm still going to pull my hair out. Or my kid's amazing. I need some support just in general. Do you have a broad message that you get throughout the week? You're like, man, I just wish I could just tell my community this. I think like, you know, my motto is that all children deserve to feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that children need to be fixed. I don't Mm -hmm. believe that autism means there's something wrong with your child. And I also believe that you deserve to have support. And I think if we can sort of think about inclusion means that we value and honor people who have different needs and abilities and we talk about it. It doesn't need to be this shame-filled thing. And I would say, like, ask for support. Talk about what you're going through and know that, like, your child is absolutely perfect exactly Mm -hmm. as they are. And you still might want someone in your corner to support you through what feels hard. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Um, I just really appreciate, one, what you bring to the community and the services that you bring. And two, that we can have these professional conversations. Yeah. I love it. And I imagine, are you working with, do you find yourself working with OTs and PTs much? I do, and I love it. Yay. I love collaborating. <laughs> yeah. With other providers, I think I learn so much and it just enhances the child and the family's ability to find that ease. Very good. Well, if you've been listening to the whole thing, then you know how awesome Jody is. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to thank you for coming on. And if you missed part of this and you want to listen a little bit more about behavior analyst and treatment and support and childhood, particularly in early intervention, please go back and listen to us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good evening. Everybody sang along. Dan Margarita were swaying side by side. I heard they were divorcing, but I guess they let it slide. And I wish they had some money with which to buy around. I wish to cash my paycheck before I came to town But I reached into my pocket, found three twenties and a ten It feels so good, feeling good